0: Good morning. It's a joy to see all of you here. If you ever have the opportunity to visit the Holy Lands, uh, and I mean the broader biblical possibilities of Holy Lands, of course you should opt for going to Israel. But very close on the heels, it will be a trip to Greece and Turkey to retrace the footsteps of the Apostle Paul and the letters of the seven churches. In 1999, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Greece and Turkey to retrace the footsteps of the Apostle Paul when I was on faculty at Gordon Conwell in those days. And as part of that uh, tour, we, we visited, of course, all of Paul's journeys, but also we visited the seven sites of the seven churches. And we were at Smyrna. And uh, I was traveling with, among others, Dr. Greg Beal, who is a well-known New Testament uh, scholar, and he had just published his massive tome, and I do mean tome, on the book of Revelation. We jokingly said it served as both a commentary and a a doorstopper. It was so big. But he was, you know, fresh in his mind, all of his insights, and so he lectured at each of the seven sites. And so we were at Smyrna, and he was lecturing on all the background to that. But I noticed, I couldn't help but notice, but there was a growing crowd of Turkish men and women who gathered around us uh, to, to listen in during the lecture. It wasn't just the faculty, it was a lot of local people. And so Dr. Beale, in his kind of erudite way, was referring it. So I went, the gospel of this, the gospel of that, the gospel of the other. And so at one point in the question and answer period, I raised my hand and said, Dr. Beal, I noticed you kept referring to the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, to which he realized that I was acknowledging that we had a large crowd gathered there, and you're in Turkey. Uh, was, at that time, probably less than 200 believers in the whole country. And so uh, he began to share the gospel. What was interesting was that if you ever stop anyone like that, or any of you, and say, what is the gospel? You know, you, you come out with a great statement. You have to, I mean, if there's ever an elevator speech, you have to have ready, it's that. What is the gospel? But then afterwards, you almost always have a little bit of regret I could have said that, I should have said this. And so Dr. Beale said to me later on, he said, you know, I felt like I, I talked about the, the, the crucifix and resurrection and need to respond, but, you know, somehow other maybe it wasn't quite enough. And that is actually a great insight. I hope all of you have. Because whenever, Christ- whenever you're asked to say anything Christianly, you're automatically, you have to say at least two or three things at the same time. Because the gospel is so nuanced, so rich, there's no way to kind of sum it all up in an elevator speech. And so I think in some ways, uh, this, our centennial year, I wanted to address something that might seem more straightforward, but what does it mean to evangelize? In 1923, when we were founded, our founder, and I'm sure you've seen it emblazoned everywhere, especially this year set as our like founding statement what is the purpose of asbury seminary at the heart of it was a statement that we're to prepare men and women to evangelize and to spread scripture holiness throughout the world what does it mean to evangelize does the church like er, does everyone agree what that means well no um do, what, do Wesleyans have any shared understanding of that term? Like, what, is there, do we have a distinctive gift? When we say evangelize, we mean this or we add this to it. I, I think that's a really important question. What does it mean to share the gospel, share the good news, the evangel? I have read, like you have, I'm sure many books. At this point in the semester, you've read a lot of books. but I don't know if you've read uh, Jim Peterson's Living Proof while you're here or Michael Green's Evangelism in the Early Church, or Rodney Stark's uh, Rise of Christianity. There's many others, but there's quite a few books that tried to get at this question. When the early church talked about evangelism and sharing the gospel, what did it mean? And there are 11 examples in the New Testament where the gospel is shared by Peter, Stephen, or Paul in public settings, We have five really important prayers that pertain to evangelism in the New Testament, not to mention other texts that are important. And then we have quite a few personal encounters of the gospel where someone shares the gospel with someone pretty much individually. Nicodemus, Samaritan woman, the rich young ruler, Levi and his friends, Nathaniel, the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, uh, Paul and Silas's jailers in Philippi, Paul to Felix, Paul to Agrippa, You, you get the point. A lot of this, and you can learn a lot from all of this. And so the challenge, of course, is when you read all of that, you realize this is a much more nuanced thing than you ought, than you think it might be. That's why I said our main text actually is the Matthean text going back to Jesus himself. Because in Matthew 9, 35 to 38, our, our gospel text, and by the way, if you read Matthew 4, 23, the wording is almost identical they try to sum up what it meant for Jesus to evangelize. What, what, like Jesus is our primal evangel. He is the, the first evangelist. And so the gospel tries to summarize well, what was Jesus doing. And it says, as you heard, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease among the people. Almost identical, Matthew four twenty three 23, 9, 35. That, that phrase is identical now in those summary statements we find that jesus did three things he taught he proclaimed and he healed the three words would be didasco to teach where we get a word didactic from caruso to preach we get a word kerygma from and to heal or get therapy from now apparently when matthew was pressed to summarize the ministry of Jesus, who embodies the evangel, he could not say one thing. He had to say three things. Well, he, he, he proclaimed, he also taught, he also healed. Very, very important to notice that. Now, I think all of us know that, and it's worth re- rehearsing this story in some ways historically, that there are two major pressure points That all of us have felt in terms of what we mean when we use the word evangelist, or we especially the word evangelization, what we mean to evangelize. The first goes back to the 16th century. The Reformation was determined, and rightfully so, to recover the gospel, and they shone a huge light on the doorway of the church and what it means to become a Christian and they wanted to, and they did, recover the doctrine of justification by faith. We ought to say amen. amen. Amen for that. No problem with that. But we also recognize that there, in the process of that, over time, there was a, a reductionistic of, that took over, so that the word salvation became equated with justification. That is a, that's a, that's essentially the theological problem. So to this day... If someone says to you, are you saved, or is someone saved, or is that person saved? When we say that or ask that question, or I was saved when so-and-so happened, what we actually normally mean, if you actually, you know, being precise about it, what we generally mean is, when I was justified, right? When someone was justified, when was that person justified? But we just broadly use the word salvation. That's a really important observation. Now, the late, uh, you know, 17th, early 18th century, pietism arose to say, hang on a minute. And, of course, more importantly for us, the Western Revivals, which grew out of that, uh, the Western Revivals were in part, and and eventually the whole Great Awakening, to readdress this problem and say, salvation is about a lot more. And as you know, when you look back on, look at the New Testament, and you look at every reference to the, book of sal- uh, the use of salvation in the New Testament, you find, amazingly, that you have to say three things. Salvation does look back at justification. It also looks straight on at our ongoing sanctification, and it looks forward someday to our ultimate glorification and union with Christ. So in other other words, to even talk about salvation, you have to end up saying three things. You can't simply say one thing. And that is essentially uh, the problem. Now that problem gets further, uh, in some ways, churned through and and, and intensified in the modern period. Because we live in a period which wanted to reduce everything and simplify it for mass consumption and mass understanding. So there was more of an attempt to say, okay, what was the gospel Let's clarify, the, the, let's clarify what exactly is at its core of its core and let's produce the four spiritual laws. Now, let me say, I would never speak against the four spiritual laws. Praise God. Do you know what the four spiritual laws are? Okay. If you've heard of that, raise your hand. Okay. Whew. That's worded. they are like, the four what? But there was a time when it was a thing. Okay, that, okay, this is the gospel right here, the four spiritual laws. Or a Billy Graham crusade. I will never criticize it because they have brought, uh, God's used it to bring millions to Christ. Thank God for that. And Billy Graham put enormous energy into following up with those who came forward to churches and all of that. But the challenge is that once you reduce it into something like that, then what happens is you end up, you further embed the idea that justification or, or, or salvation means, you know, justification. And that's all that we mean by that. That becomes essentially the problem. So when the gospel, of course, does call us to repent and believe, that was actually the first thing Jesus said when he started his ministry in Mark 1.15, Matthew 4.17. And, uh, by the way, it's the first thing of the church in Acts 2.38 uh, when Paul Peter calls us to repent on the day of Pentecost. But the, the New Testament narrative, or the Acts narrative, is also about Extending the church, the redeemed community in the world. What we would call today house churches, blockchain churches, micro communities. That, when you think about those terms, that's what we're talking about, what's happening all across the Mediterranean basin. And the, and the, and the book of Acts is about that. Now, what happens is we use the phrase, like Paul's missionary journeys, and I know from teaching missions over the years, talking to students, and in the church, when people hear that phrase, like, they think, what did Paul do in the book of Acts? What most people think of, which is actually not what actually happens, is they think that Paul was conducting mass evangelistic campaigns. Like, Paul was like, a, like the first Billy Graham, going from town to town preaching the gospel. Now, there are examples of individuals who come to Christ, like Lydia and the Philippian jailer, and probably uh, a in the, in the book of, on, on the island of Malta likely him. But the point is, it's not a lot of that. It's mostly about planting churches. The time frame is much more extensive than we often give it credit for. And we don't realize the time Paul spent in planting churches, creating communities of faith. Now this is important because in the Wesleyan perspective, we understand that this process of the evangel has to move through the whole doctrine of salvation. Now, I want to introduce you to a quote, and I would never quote anything critical of George Whitfield. God bless him, but this is himself criticizing himself, so it's okay to let someone criticize themselves, so I want to show you this quote from George Whitfield about, he's speaking favorably about John Wesley, okay, now both of them, as you know, you know the story, Whitfield is the one that God led to start the whole, that, 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 what we now call the Wesleyan Awakening, the Great Awakening, what they call the Great Evangelical Awakening. When Whitfield had to go back to America, he turned it over to John, and you might say the rest is history. But we, our movement was built on the foundation of George Whitfield's revival, revival messages. Had huge followings. All this happened before Wesley got involved. But at the end of their ministry, after all of that, George Whitfield says this, My brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined into societies and thus preserved the fruit of his labor. This I neglected, and my people are a rope of sand. Now that is a very telling and powerful point. The crucial insight is that we must have a deeper evangelism that involves both... uh, becoming a Christian and also being one. And that is central to the Wesleyan understanding of evangelism. Now the second, I mentioned there are two problems. That was, so the first problem is the reductionism of salvation to mean justification. That's the first problem. second problem, also in the 20th century, and now in the 21st, is the wedge that's been put between evangelism as a thing and social action. Now this has been a perennial challenge, and there's a lot of very powerful evangelical statements to say this is not biblical. 1966, the Wheaton Declaration; 1966, the World Congress on Evangelism in Berlin; the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social, Cur- evangelical Social Concern, in 1973, and the Lausanne Covenant, in 1974, of which our own seven of faith is derived. Now, if you remember, if you know the history of the Lausanne Covenant, you'll know that the Lausanne Covenant was pretty well in final form when delegates from Latin America and a few from India, we have some Indians here today. God bless the Indians and Latin Americans raised their hands and say, well, hang on a minute. This is a lot, this is too much about like the how of evangelism. It's a lot about you know, church cooperation and all that. The how evangelism. But we have questions about the what of evangelism. We want to clarify what the what is. Because the whole document seemed to assume a what that they didn't think was clearly proper. And that's what led, and go back and Google it. Go Google the Lausanne Covenant. Not now, but um, the Lausanne Covenant and read Article 5 on the ratio of evangelism and social action. You'll see, at least from the 74 perspective, they tend to wed these two properly together. Again, back to... The summary sin of Jesus. He went about teaching, preaching, and healing. All of these are wed together. Word and deed are one in the New Testament view of evangelism. So, yes, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. Absolutely. I salut to Jews. Uh, those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Christ the wisdom of God. That is all through the Bible. We're preaching the centrality of Christ's death and resurrection. Absolutely. I love Romans 10, that golden chain. How can they call on one they've not believed in? How can they believe unless they've heard? How can they hear unless someone has preached to them? How can they preach unless someone is sent? And that shows a very powerful Chain between the sending church, the preaching witness, the hearing person, the believing and calling upon the Lord. Absolutely essential. But scripture also says the perils of a dead faith. What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, right? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food and one of you says, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed but does nothing about his physical needs what good is it faith by itself if not accompanied by action is dead james says reflecting the old testament religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world so paul in the context of this church planting is also raising money for the famine relief in Jerusalem, right? When they have the famous uh, reconciliation of the gospel of the Judaizers, Paul says, um, he's describing what happened in Galatians 2, he says, all they ask is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. We often neglect that side of Paul's ministry. He was not simply going around preaching he was also deeply involved in planting believing communities and i still believe there's no better modern definition of the church than sandy sandy richter who once said the church is the outpost of the new creation in adam's world the church is meant to embody the whole of the evangel and all that it embodies so anything in the new creation reconciliation peace harmony all that happens in the life of the church And that Cornelius text we read, if you'll look at that text carefully, you'll see that in that passage he actually lays out, and that's just one of those amazing texts of preaching the gospel, he actually lays out seven aspects of what it means to be an evangelist or what it means to do the evangel in that one passage, the universal scope of the gospel, the shalom of God, the the anointing of God in Christ to do good, The uh, healing from oppression he talks about. The centrality of the death and resurrection. How Christ will be the judge of all the earth and through the gospel forgiveness of sins. All of that is in that one uh, proclamation. Later on, by the way, when Paul talks to Felix, he brings up sanctification. You should go through and read all those accounts every time the gospel is presented in the book of Acts. Very, very, very powerful. So, in conclusion, when our mission statement says... We're committed to evangelize. It is envisioning this both in depth and breadth to encompass all of the ways the good news should be embodied and proclaimed and brought to a broken generation. So we want to thank God. Let's publicly thank God for every one of our counseling students, for example, who has committed themselves to healing and bringing the gospel in that way to this generation. That's what that word, the ministry is where we get our word therapy from. That's what they're doing. They are bringing healing to people. We thank God for evangelists. And the word evangelist, unlike the word, just a general word, what does it mean to, you know, bring, to to evangelize? There is a particular office of evangelists. People who are called to show people the doorway of the church and of Christ. Praise God for those committed to doing that in our midst. We praise God for future pastors who will leave this place and go out and to disciple and nurture actual communities of faith. I just spent the whole weekend in South Carolina. By the way, all of South Carolina gives you greetings. They kept saying greetings, but I had a wonderful time in South Carolina, and the pastor there, God bless him, uh, so committed to seeing his people grow, and to mature in the faith. These are, these are great gifts of God. I thank, praise God for those who are committed to the work of racial reconciliation in a broken world. Praise God. It's a form of preaching of the gospel. The gospel reconciles people. Praise God for that. We thank God for those who have heart to work among refugees. Think about the people who are, 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 have no hope, no help no one to stand beside them unless you stand beside them and embody the life of Christ next to them. We thank God for those who stand in pulpits and preach the word of God and preach the power of the death and resurrection of Christ in pulpits all across America and the world. We thank God for those who spend their ministries feeding the poor, housing the homeless, working for social justice and the disenfranchised. All of that is essential to the gospel. We thank God for those who are committed not only to seeking justice, but also dismantling structures of evil in our world. It is wrong to think that sin is only personal. Sin likes to invade everything. Sin is very happy to invade structures of society as well as individuals. Sin wants to destroy everything. And so the gospel is seeking to build, rebuild what it means to have reconciled communities and systems that work for justice, kindness, and compassion. Those biblical words in the Old Testament, mishpat and chesed and Ramim, these are not things that are left behind when we come to the New Testament. It's part of the heart of God. And all of that is rooted in what it means to proclaim Jesus Christ died, resurrected, and ascended. And so part of, I think, your ministry is to to re-envision and re- re-empower the full scope and power of what it means to evangelize in the world. And I think the other big thing, is the and the, this is the very point of why we have all this diversity in all this, is that not no one of us, not any one of us, me, you, any of us, can fully embody what it means to evangelize. None of us can doesn't matter how fruitful your ministry is, all of us only reflect a facet of a very beautiful diamond. And only together, by working together and honoring each other's ministries, honoring each other's callings here, learning to appreciate everyone's calling here, can together we fully evangelize the world to the ministries that God sends from this place. And so may it be said of us, as it was said of Jesus, May you, either shortly or some of you years from now when you graduate, hopefully not too many years, may you go about in your cities and villages teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus Christ crucified, dead, raised and ascended. And healing every disease. Therapy, therapy, healing. And every Affliction, healing every disease and affliction, that's bodily, socially, structurally, all of that among the people. If we do, if we go out and do that collectively as a community, then we will have resonated with our founding mission and what was intended by our founders a hundred years ago when they said that we were to go out to evangelize and to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Amen. God bless you.